This podcast is a presentation of Faith Assembly of God, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Get more information online at faithishere.org to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 11 a.m. Thank you for making this podcast a part of your week. Good to be back with you guys today. I've been glad to be in church this morning. Glad to be in the presence of the Lord. Come together to worship Him as a congregation today. What a joy to be here. I understand Craig just rang the bell last week. We had a wonderful time with Pastor Craig. Tonight after the classes at 7.30, all those are going to Panama. I'll meet with you guys in that room back there for just a few moments at 7.30 this evening. I want to welcome all those who are watching by way of television today. I understand that Friday we went on Comcast channel 230. So if you have Comcast as your cable provider, uh, you can watch us at, on channel 230 and drop them a note of appreciation for putting us on, and uh, that would be great. And you that are watching by way of video venue, we welcome you as well today. Small boy ask his dad why they call Good Friday good. He said, what's good about Good Friday? And his father said, well, because that's the day that Jesus died. The boy looked back and said, well, Dad, what's so good about that? Good question. Because even the best of news, even the good news that comes along and comes our way usually is bad for somebody else. At at Thanksgiving, we get together and we celebrate with family and we have a great time and we enjoy the Thanksgiving feast that we eat together. But how many know Thanksgiving's bad news for the turkey? Remember the movie Rocky? He dances around the ring. He says, yo, Adrian, I did it. I did it. And it's good news and everybody's celebrating. It's good news for everybody but Apollo Creed who lies on his back smelling salts. They're taking to his nose. He's trying to make sense of the lights above him. It's not so good for Apollo. Hebrews 9.22 said it best this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's a double-edged sword concerning Christ's mercy. Yes, God comes. He brings grace. Yes, God gives us mercy. But I want to tell you that grace and that mercy did not come without a price that was paid. The remission of our sins is good news. It's great news today. Every sin can be taken away. And we can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But the shedding of blood is not a happy prospect for the sacrifice. Mercy. Always comes with a price. I want to take you back to the tabernacle of Moses. They had a a room that was divided by a very thick curtain called the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was behind that curtain. And no one could even go in there except the high priest and only once a year. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, that that box that was overlaid with gold inside that Ark of the Covenant were two tablets of the law. And over top of the Ark, you had the cherubim. And the law condemned all mankind, and the law tells us that we are all sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And over that flat covering on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the judgment seat. And two winged cherubims with their wings touching each other made up 
of gold themselves. They would look down and gazing on the top of that judgment seat on top of the law. That gaze signified that our sins are ever before the sinless gaze of our Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty. But once a year that the high priest would go in and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would put it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that precious blood that was spilled there, that uh, atoning blood that was poured there on top of the Ark, turned that judgment seat into the mercy seat. Because I want to tell you, the eyes of heaven cannot see through the blood. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. The blood of Christ, the blood of the sacrifice, turns the judgment seat that we all deserved, that the law exposes. It turns it into a mercy seat. I want to read a story to you, a parable that Jesus Christ told. Does then he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now notice he prayed with himself. Obviously, he wasn't praying to God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in this story, Jesus treats that first man, that Pharisee, with very harshly, with sarcasm. But the contrast with the humble, penitent sinner, and he says, God, be merciful to be a sinner. Literally, that can be translated, God, be mercy seated to me, a sinner. God, be mercy seated to me, a sinner. You see, the first man is the Pharisee, and he shows that all of our righteousness is exposed before the judgment seat. The wrath of the law is upon this man. And he says, I keep the law, and I tithe, and, and, and I fast, and I'm a good man, and I don't do anything bad, and I am okay. Listen, when you come to God with your legalism and your good works, you disgrace the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a phrase that youth used to use, and maybe not so much anymore, but, but uh, several years ago they would say, he dissed you. I heard that. You've been dissed. You've been put down. You've been criticized. Uh, and, and so that phrase was dissed. You've been dissed to put someone down. There's a word disgrace. Uh, and when we try to depend on our own legalism, uh, our own righteousness, our own good works to somehow please a holy God, we disgrace. We put down grace. He was relying on his good works. The second man, the tax collector, he comes to God. 
He has no merit to stand on in and of himself whatsoever. Uh, and so he appeals to the blood. Uh, I will tell you, it is the blood that makes all the difference. Uh, and he is broken by his own sinfulness uh, and his humble confession. Uh, and so either we are hopeless sinners covered by his blood or we stand naked before the judgment seat today. Can't have it both ways. Either you rely on God's grace or you rely on your legalism and you bring disgrace, the blood of God. We talked about that Ark of the Covenant. There was a time when the Ark of the Covenant was taken into battle. They thought falsely if they had the presence of God in that Ark of the Covenant that somehow they could never lose a battle. And so in their presumption, they took the Ark out of the tabernacle and they marched into battle with that. And it was captured by the Philistines and they lost a great battle that day. But everywhere they took the Ark of the Covenant in the Philistine towns, uh, that Ark simply brought chaos to the Philistine people. It brought sickness. It brought death. And after seven months of moving that Ark of the Covenant from city to city, finally they gave up and said, the, the men said, let's send it back to Jerusalem. Let's send it back to Israel. We don't want to hear any more. we got to get it out of our midst. It's only bringing destruction. You see, for them, it was a judgment seat. And so they got a couple of cows who at that time were calfing their young and they said you know what we'll we'll put the ark on a cart and we'll put it behind these two cows and we'll release the cows and if the cows leave and they penned up their those that they were calving the little calves and they penned them up and and they sent the cows on their journey back towards israel and all the way those cows are bellowing as they go as they're leaving their young but god told the cows go back so they begin to head back, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6. I want to show you what happened with the Ark of the Covenant. As it was coming into Beth Shemesh, the men gathered around the Ark and said, the Ark is coming back. Look at what they did. 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19. And then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the Ark of the Lord. And he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Verse 20, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? You see, unless our sins are covered by the blood. We simply stand before the judgment of God. And on that day, 50,070 people died because they looked into the law of God. They looked into the Ark of the Covenant. If you look into the law and your own righteousness and your own works, it will condemn. But God looks at the blood. And wherever he sees the blood, he will pass over. And God's judgment seat can be turned into God's Mercy seat. You see, the marvelous thing about mercy is it costs me nothing, but it costs God everything. So that we might have mercy and grace, he gave his life on the cross. And he paid the price for our redemption. And now he tells us, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose my grace and my mercy? Or are you going to choose judgment and death? And we choose by rejecting the grace of God. We have a pretty good handle on salvation by grace alone. It's a part of what we believe. It's a part of who we are. We believe in grace of God. We know that we are only saved 
by God's grace. The tragedy is, though, often after our salvation, we revert back to works. We revert back to keeping the law. We revert back to fear. The Word of God says, it is not by might, it is not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The only way that we are saved and clean and mercy seated is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to your text. I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. Look, if you would, at verse number 6. And so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts, he has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the entire earth. Zerubbabel. Who was this man? The name Zerubbabel literally means the shoot of Babylon, which tells us that Zerubbabel was a man who was born in captivity. It was during the time of the Babylonian captivity, those 70 years when Israel was in Babylon, and it was there Zerubbabel was born. He was of the royal family line of King David, and had Israel still ruled and reigned in power like they once did, he would have been one of the next kings of the nation of Israel. He was in the Davidic line, King David. When Cyrus, the king of Persia, said, you can go back and you can rebuild the temple and I will send you back to your land, to the land of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem, and I will let you rebuild the temple, he made Zerubbabel the new governor of the city of Jerusalem. And the first thing Zerubbabel did when he got back to Jerusalem after being free from captivity, he erected an altar. And there he offered a burnt offering before the Lord. Zerubbabel. And it would be Zerubbabel who would lay the foundation stone for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But I want to take it a step further. I believe Zerubbabel is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 7, the Bible says, Before Zerubbabel, this mountain shall be made a plain. When John the Baptist burst on the scene in Luke chapter 3, verse 5, he prophesied that when Jesus Christ come, every mountain shall be made low. It shall be made a valley. The mountain will go away, quoting from Isaiah the prophet. In verse number 9, it says of Zerubbabel, the hands that laid the foundation of this temple, his hands shall also finish it. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ has birthed a temple that is called the bride of Christ. Every one of us are the temple of the living God. And the same one who laid the foundation of the temple is able to bring it to completion. And the word of God says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Zerubbabel gives us a beautiful picture, I believe, symbolically, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have to look at the mountain. 
The mountain in Zerubbabel's time stood for the rebuilding of the temple. It was a mountainous task to go back in and somehow rebuild the temple that had been torn down and destroyed. Uh, And Israel wept. uh, And they said, can this temple ever be as good as the first temple? Uh, Will we ever see the glory uh, like we saw in the first glory? Uh, And Zerubbabel says, despise not the day of small beginnings. Uh, God is even to make the glory of the latter temple uh, greater than the glory of the former temple. Uh, I want to tell you, there is a glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The latter temple uh, is greater than any human temple made by the hands of man. But that mountain is also symbolic of kingdom dominion. When you see mountains in the word of God, it symbolizes power. It symbolizes authority. Now I want you to picture the mountain there. The mountain is that mountain that separates us from a holy God. Uh, But you have a picture of Jesus uh, standing on the other side of the mountain, uh, that mountain that's going to be brought made flat, uh, and he shouts, Grace! Grace! He shouts to the mountain, Grace! Grace be to it! Before that voice, that mountain shall be brought down. You see, Jesus Christ is not coaching you to do better. He's not saying you can make it in your own strength. You can try a little bit harder. You can be a little bit gooder. You can do as, that's not bad English, by the way, but you can do better. He's not pushing us to perfect ourselves. All that does is drives us into the mountain of holiness and frustration. I want to tell you, it is only by grace. Uh, And he shouts to the mountain, grace, grace. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse number 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before those eyes, Jesus Christ is clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? J.B. Phillips in his translation says, Dear Idiots, he says, You're starting grace. And you're trying to finish in works. I want to tell you, Christ shouts to that mountain, grace, grace. Calvary shouts to the mountain, grace, grace, uh, for us to hear on the other side. Uh, Every epistle in the New Testament ends with the words, uh, grace be unto you. Uh, Listen, we are saved by grace. Uh, We are kept by grace. Uh, We follow by grace. Uh, It's grace that's going to get us into heaven. Uh, It's grace that gets us through this life. Uh, It is grace and grace alone. Romans chapter 6, he talks about grace. He says, we are buried with God, uh, with Christ Jesus, through grace. Uh, We are raised to walk with him uh, in newness of life with grace. Uh, In my weakness, uh, it is only God's grace that will ever get me through. Grace. Now, Now, we know this intellectually. Why is it so hard for us to 
follow this principle and grasp these truths. Because in America we are taught a rugged individualism. The American idea ideal says you can make it on your own, be all that you can be, and what happens is we keep running into that mountain again and again and again. There is a tragedy in the pride of perfectionism. And so we say to ourselves, how dare my, my son or my daughter disappoint me? How dare they blow it? How dare my husband go bankrupt and leave me in this mess that I am in and our, our pride once again is wounded and injured because we have failed? How dare my hair turn gray and the wrinkles come to my face and I get old? How dare I get sick in body? How dare my spouse leave me? And the truth is that in this life we do not live in a perfect world and we will all sustain griefs and hurts and wounds. Uh, that, my friend, is life. Uh, that is the good and the bad and ugly of it all. There was a tag on a dress in the store, on the inside of the dress, and it said, this, this fabric is woven with natural fibers. The irregularities only serve to enhance the beauty of the garment. The irregularities only serve to enhance the beauty of the garment. You see, legalism, that mountain of legalism, the law tells us that for every action, there is a corresponding reaction. And so if there's something bad, there must be a cause that made it happen. I want to tell you, life is not that simple. Even on the finest of family trees grow some strange limbs. No family is perfect. And sometimes the people we love the most make incredibly stupid and destructive decisions. We scratch our head and we say, how can they be so dumb? And we grieve. And I want to tell you parents something here today, and I want you to listen to me. Quit blaming yourself for every mistake your children make. And children, quit blaming your parents for all the mistakes you make. Everybody here has a belly button. Raise your hand. I'm not going to take a poll. Some of you have innies. That's the belly button goes in. Some of you have outies. That's a little bit of belly button sticking out. But in every case, the umbilical cord is gone. Not there anymore. It's, it's gone. It's been cut. So quit blaming your mom and dad for every problem you have right now. The umbilical cord is gone. And moms and dads, quit blaming yourself for every mistake your kids make. The umbilical cord has been cut. You see, it's this, this thought of perfectionism. It's this thought that I've got to look good in front of everybody else. I've got to look good on the outside. Uh, what happens if your daughter becomes pregnant? What happens when your kids drop out of school? 
what happens? You have a teenager that gets into rebellion and drugs and alcohol. So often, rather than turning to the church body and the church family for help and support in your time of need, uh, because of our embarrassment, we just pack up our bags and go to another church where no one else will know us and know what's going on in our lives. And we go through a bankruptcy and we go through a financial reversal or we're abandoned by our spouse or the marriage is in shambles. Uh, and instead of running to the very people, your church body, your church family, who can help you and wrap their arms around you and pray you through it and extend grace to you because of our pride, of our perfectionism, uh, it's easier to run, leave and escape. And some of you are here because you left someplace else because they knew what was going on. In your family. Listen, when we need mercy the most, fear of being found out forces them out of a loving body and a loving community. Listen, when we're all truly honest about our imperfections, uh, when we realize we are imperfect and we all need God's grace, uh, then that frees us up to wrap our arms out and extend mercy and grace to those who are around us. But if we're like the Pharisee who stands in the temple courts and says, I thank you, God, that I'm a good guy and I got my marriage together and my job's still holding together and my kids are all picture postcard kids uh, and I'm thankful, God, that I'm not like this tax collector on the other side of the church who's really messed up his life. If we'll begin to understand it is only by God's grace and God's grace alone that we are here, uh, that we are anything that we can reach out and begin to help those who are in need and those who are hurting and those who are broken. Only through God's grace. You see, we disgrace ourselves in a couple of ways. The first is by imposing legalism. And that's exactly what the problem with the Galatians was. Uh, They taught that even after salvation, uh, you need to return to the law. You need to follow all the Jewish dietary laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to return to your Judaistic roots. And so uh, they imposed legalism back on those who were being saved in the early church uh, as a means to salvation. Paul says, how can you be so stupid? Don't you know you begin in grace? It's only through the grace of Calvary you're saved, and you're only going to remain saved by staying in the grace of God and God's grace alone. The second way we disgrace ourselves is by creating that lust to succeed, that perfectionism, that neurotic drive that says, I can prove it, I can make it on my own, uh, I can make it out there, and so we drive to that mountain of God, uh, and we come to the mountain, but I want to tell you, you can't climb the mountain. It will only lead to frustration. It will only lead to fear. And eventually you get so frustrated, you give up and you say, I can't do it. Uh, I can't serve God. I've tried. Uh, I fail and I fail again. I cannot make it. Uh, Let me tell you, you will never, ever be good enough. Never be good enough. But the good news is Jesus Christ comes along uh, and he shouts to the mountain, grace, grace. And it says before God, every mountain shall be brought low. And then we can run into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can embrace him and hug him and hold him. And he shouts grace, grace. And before him, that mountain will be made flat. 
run into the arms of God. Dr. Mark Rutland tells a story in his book, Streams of Mercy, about a pastor who had an evangelist in for revival. True story. And the man was preaching, and he preached the first night. And a lady was in the church, and she considered herself a prophetess. And she did not care for this evangelist in any way, shape, or form. And she went to the pastor and said, Pastor, listen, we need to shut down this meeting right now. You need to send the evangelist home. Uh, he's not what we need for this church. I don't like him, and, and get rid of him. And of course, the pastor did not, resp- did not acquiesce to her request. And so uh, the meetings kept going on. The next night, the evangelist stood up to preach. They began to preach that evening, and this lady, this prophetess sitting out in the pews, took all about she could take and had about enough. And so right at the beginning of his message, she stands up, and she begins to point a finger at that man who's preaching up there, that evangelist, and she begins to wail this prophecy. Thus saith the Lord, thou thinketh thou art a humdinger, but thou art not a humdinger, thou art a dinger. And the congregation is horrified, and they all get quiet, and no one says a word. And all of a sudden, the evangelist just breaks out into laughter and begins to laugh. And then the whole congregation begins to laugh, and it sweeps over the congregation. And that prophet has finally got mad in a huff and stomps her foot and walks out of the church. Now, there's a moral to this story. You, some of you have not heard the word humdinger. But, uh, I could tell by your response. You're not familiar with that terminology at all, but it's a... The phrase we used to use, humdinger. You're a real humdinger. That was a good thing. But here's the moral of the story. We are all just dingers. Set free from the need to be a humdinger. Set free from the need to be a humdinger in a world full of dingers. We're all saved by God's grace. Turn to your neighbor right now and just say, I'm just a dinger. The second lesson from that little story is this. Learn to laugh at yourself. The Bible says a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. That night, that congregation was freed from religious pretense. Spirit of God broke out and revival came to that church. Listen, we're all just dingers. But I want to tell you, Christ says, I still love you. And he shouts to that mountain, grace, grace, grace be to it. I think one of the ways in the church that some people have carelessly heaped condemnation over others in the body of Christ is that when somebody's sick, some have used the response, you just don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, you wouldn't be sick. Further adding to their condemnation. And what they begin to do is they reduce God's grace to legalism, which says if we say certain words in a certain way, in a certain order, If we say in the name of Jesus loud enough and hard enough and long enough, if we follow certain 
physical laws, uh, then somehow healing will come. Uh, Let me tell you, every gift of God comes by grace. Grace. We bring more condemnation and more guilt on those who are already hurting and suffering enough. Dr. Siemens was a missionary to India, his wife Helen. They had a son who was born with a deformed foot. So they had to return to the United States for an operation. And following the surgery, Dr. Siemens had to do painful home rehabilitation on the boy. And so he had to go through these excruciating exercises so that one day the boy could walk normally again. And he would take his hands and he would press his fingers into the feet of that boy who had just had surgery, who had the the deformed foot, and go through these excruciating exercises. uh, And as he would begin to press on that boy's foot, the boy would begin to scream out in pain and in agony. And soon the father, as he was pressing on that boy's foot, would begin weeping with the boy. But the painful process had to go on in order for that boy to walk once again. I take that picture and I think of God who looks down on us. The Bible says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he sees our pain and our discomfort, but he will not stop the process of our perfection. He keeps working. He keeps pressing. He keeps massaging his thumbs, digging to our unresponsive flesh because we deal with our flesh. And God's dealing with that flesh nature. And he presses his thumb into our flesh. And we scream out in pain. And we say, please stop. God, have mercy on me. God says, this is mercy. I'm sorry it hurts, but to stop would leave you crippled. That would be merciless. And it's hard to find the goodness in God's strong hands as he presses on our flesh. And we look, and we see his face. The tears are running down his face knows what we're going through. You see, that's exactly what happened when Christ went to the cross. And he hung there for you and he hung there for me and the blood ran down Calvary and ran all the way to the base of that cross. And it was that price that he paid for our mercy and for our grace. And we are saved by grace and grace alone. Uh, And Christ in the cross shouts to that mountain of legalism, uh, shouts to those barriers of our sinfulness that keeps us away from a holy God uh, because God cannot look on sin. uh, And he shouts, grace, grace be unto it. Uh, And he flattens out that mountain uh, and we can run and find safety and harbor in the arms of God. Uh, You see, we're saved by grace. We are kept by grace. uh, And his grace is going to take us all the way through to the end. uh, And God's grace alone. Four lessons. Jot them down. Number one, show grace to others. Listen, we as a church got to quit being so judgmental and holier than thou. Mightier and better and critical of those around us. 
Every one of us are saved by the grace of God. When we begin to understand the great price for God's grace for us, then we'll begin to embrace one another in the body of Christ and love them and weep with them and see them through their heartache and their pain and their hurts. Number two, remember we're all just dingers. There's not a humdinger in the bunch. Number three, learn to laugh at yourself. We are going to fail, we're going to fall, we're going to stumble, we're going to blow it time and time again, but we need to learn to laugh at ourselves. And number four, even in suffering, we can see God's hands of grace working in our life, working in this flesh, perfecting that work in us so that he who began a good work is able to bring it all away to completion. I want to close with a story. It's a story you've heard before, but many of you have heard it, but some of you have not about a man who made his living by a ship merchant. He would take slaves. He would take them from Africa or from wherever and transport them across the Atlantic Ocean to England where the slaves would be taken off the ship and they would be sold to the highest bidders. On those long journeys across the Atlantic Ocean, oftentimes as the slaves were packed in the bottom part of the boat, they would die, disease would come in, and, and literally the slave merchant saw himself as a murderer of thousands of people as they traveled across the ocean. But this man gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he became a pastor in the Church of England. His name was John Newton, and John Newton would later write a song entitled Amazing Grace, and musicians come on up and begin to play that in the background. He wrote the song Amazing Grace. It's interesting, the song was written in the five with the five black keys on the keyboard of the piano. It was the same melody, it was the same uh, sound as he would hear on the Africans as they would sing below in the bottom of the slave ship as they're being transported across the Atlantic Ocean. It's the same keys that most Negro spirituals are sung in today. And those haunting melodies that he heard on the ship, out of that deepest depravity came a beautiful song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. It saved a wretch like me. Once was lost. Now I'm found. Blind. Now I see. Grace. 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 Next Sunday morning, we're going to take a walk up Calvary. We're going to see the price of Christ's suffering, grace. We're going to take a look at who put Christ on the cross. And then we're going to gather around the table of the Lord, have communion together as we enter this week, a holy week. But you know what? This, this morning, some of you guys have a mountain in your way. There's a mountain that's there. That mountain's blocking the light. That mountain's casting shadows. That mountain's bringing some fear. You're going through it in your body. You're going through it in your family. You're going through it in your finances. You know where to turn, what to do. It's God's grace that's going to bring you through. And we're going to pray this morning. We're going to gather around these altars. Those who need a physical touch, we're going to anoint you with oil. 
The Bible says if you anoint him with oil, the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and raise him up. And so we're going to pray for your healing. We pray that mountain's going to come down. Others of you, it's your finances, you're broke, and you can't pay the bills, and they're going to foreclose on the house, and the mountain looms in front of you, and you're afraid. I want to tell you, we're coming to God's grace today and believe that mountain's going to come down. Whatever the mountain may be, some of you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, and you need to run into his arms this morning and say, Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you'll humble yourself like that penitent sinner, the tax collector, if you'll humble yourself, God will forgive you and cleanse you today. But whatever you have need of, I want to encourage you to run into the arms of the Lord this morning. Let's stand together right now. As we sing Amazing Grace, if you need prayer, you come right now. I want all our prayer workers or altar workers to come and prepare to minister around these altars. As we reach out and touch and love one another today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's sing it together as you come. Amazing Grace. This podcast has been a presentation of Faith Assembly, where our mission is to connect people with Christ and to experience life. Thank you for listening this week.